you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and let us read together from God's Word. Luke chapter 1, and beginning in verse 46. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and you may be seated. Christmas carols have been around for centuries. Some say they have been around since at least the 4th century, claiming that hymns about the Incarnation were written at that time to oppose the Arian heresy, which denied the deity of Christ. Others say there are historical records of Christmas hymns being sung as early as 129 A.D., Now, the word carol is a French word that means circle dance or song of praise and joy. And some claim that Christmas carols originated when Christians took over the pagan celebration of the winter solstice and gave the people Christian songs to sing instead of pagan ones. Now, I propose to you that the concept of singing songs of praise and joy, carols, at the birth of Christ originated in the Bible. In the Gospel of Luke, there are a total of five songs of joy and praise that are inspired by the advent of our Lord to the earth. Advent simply means to come, to come down, to come towards Graham Scroggie has classified these biblical Christmas carols as the last of the Hebrew psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. All of these hymns of praise and joy were inspired by the advent of our Emmanuel, that is, by the incarnation of our Lord to the earth, the birth of Jesus the Messiah. And these nativity hymns in and of themselves reveal to us that a proper response to the advent or to the coming of God is, for one thing, rejoicing in song. The nativity hymn that we are looking at this morning is known as Mary's Magnificat. The full title in Latin, 
though I probably won't pronounce it correctly, Magnificat Anima Mea Dominum, which correlates with the first line of the song, My Soul Magnifies the Lord. And this song was sung by Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And at this point in Luke's gospel, Mary had already been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and in her womb the Son of God had been conceived. But six months earlier, Elizabeth, who had been barren, had conceived with John the Baptist. And so Mary goes to visit her, pre- her pregnant cousin. Now Mary may have been coming to congratulate her elder cousin Elizabeth, but when she arrives, it is actually Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit who pronounces blessing upon Mary when she arrives. John the Baptist, still in the womb of his mother, was also filled with the Holy Spirit when Mary and Jesus in her womb came into their house. And he began leaping with joy at the arrival of the Messiah in the virgin womb of Mary. And in response to all of this, Mary instantly bursts forth into singing this hymn. Now, some scholars doubt that Mary, who was merely a a young teenage girl at this time, could have composed such a great theological masterpiece. And so they attribute this hymn to Luke, the author of this gospel, claiming that he put the words in her mouth. But this view has no regard for the doctrine of inspiration. Mary was guided by the Holy Spirit as she sang this song. Now, we're not sure if these words came out of her spontaneously in that moment or if she perhaps wrote them on her way to visit her cousin or perhaps even before. But Mary, born along by the Holy Spirit, gave us this nativity carol. But it's not as though Mary is the first to sing all the words of this hymn. When the Holy Spirit moved her to sing, she broke forth into praise by singing words and phrases that the Spirit had already inspired from the Old Testament. Her song is very similar to other songs and psalms of the Old Testament. The Magnificat either quotes at times or alludes to verses from Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And so in short, Mary knew her Bible. Mary would have been immersed with the sacred writings of her people, both at home and in the synagogue. And so when the Lord advented to her, she was ready to respond with joyful praise that would properly magnify God. And so the Magnificat is saturated with Scripture, with Old Testament Scripture. But it alludes to the prayer and song of Hannah in 1 Samuel more than any other Scripture of the Old Testament. Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, 11 prayed, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the 
affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. Now, in the Greek Septuagint, the word there for affliction is actually the same as Mary uses in verse 48 of the Magnificat when she sings. For he looked on, here it is, the humble estate of his servant. And so Hannah's affliction or humble estate came from her barrenness. She had longed for children, but up to that point could not conceive. In chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, Hannah composes a song of joy and praise because the Lord had looked upon her humble estate, the humble estate of her barrenness, and gave to her a son who would become the prophet Samuel. And I encourage you, if you have time uh, before you go to bed this evening or sometime this week, to read Hannah's prayer. We did read it already in our uh, earlier in the service, but I encourage you uh, to read it again and to notice the similarities between it and Mary's Magnificat. Now, Mary alludes to it often in her song, but the humble estate that Mary sings is not so much about her own barrenness, but of the barrenness of Israel as they longed for the birth of their Savior. In that way, Hannah was kind of a type, uh, being barren and not being able to uh, give birth. And for many, many long years, Israel had been barren of its Messiah. The Old Testament had prophesied of a coming Savior, of a child that would be born. The people of God were to expect an Emmanuel advent. And now that these prophecies were beginning to take place, they were coming to fulfillment, Mary burst forth into a song and a praise of joy, similar to the way Hannah did once she realized she had conceived. And so let's take a look at this Nativity hymn and take note of some proper responses to the advent of our God. Now, uh, this evening, I want to draw two main points from this Nativity hymn. The first point is that the advent of God should cause us to magnify Him for who He is. It should cause us to magnify Him for who He is. And secondly, the advent of God should cause us to recognize our humble estate. Firstly, then, an advent of God should cause us to magnify him for who he is. Now, Mary begins her song saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. And to magnify means to make great or to enlarge. And so Mary begins her carol with the intention to make the Lord great. Now, neither Mary nor anyone else can actually make God larger than he is or greater than he is. God cannot be made greater than what he already and always has been in and of himself. But he can be enlarged in our own lives as we gain a greater knowledge of who he is. Mary elaborates on what it means for her soul to magnify the Lord in her following statement. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. What Mary does here 
is simply restate in different words what she has already said. She's using a Hebrew poetic technique known as doubling. You see, the soul in the first line and the spirit in the second are two different ways to speak about the inner self, to speak of someone at the core of who they are. Because the Christ had been conceived in her virgin womb, Mary begins to think greater and larger thoughts of God in her life. And so on account of the advent of the Son of God, Mary's whole self magnifies and rejoices in God. And Mary had great reason to magnify and rejoice in God. He had chosen her to bear the Savior of the world. But she not only magnified the Lord and rejoiced in him because of what he had done, but also because of who he is. Look at verses 49 and 50. She says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, in these two verses, she praises God for three of his perfections or attributes, we might say. First, she speaks of him who is mighty. She speaks of him who is mighty. Now, she may be in a humble estate, but he is powerful. She could not have produced the birth of the Savior by her own power. But what is impossible with man is possible with God. He is mighty. She experienced God's might at the conception when the power of the Most High overshadowed her. And now she was to be the mother of the Messiah. In fact, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, gave him the messianic title, Mighty God. He will be mighty God. Mary's knowledge of God's sovereignty had been enlarged in her life, and so she rejoiced in her spirit. But secondly, or the second attribute, we see that Mary magnified the Lord for his holiness. Holy is his name, she proclaims. As a Hebrew girl, she would have understood holiness to mean set apart, to be separate or exalted. And to describe his name as holy was to lift him infinitely high above all of creation. And it's interesting that Mary gained a greater insight to the holiness of God as he advented to her. Because he who is infinitely higher than all of creation identified with the creation in the incarnation. As he was conceived in her womb, he identified with creation, yet he is holy and infinitely higher than all of creation. He identified with creation, yet he remained holy. The angel Gabriel had told her back in verse 35 that the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. To know that our Savior identified with our weakness as creatures, yet remained divine and powerful and holy, should bring great rejoicing in our lives 
and cause us to magnify our Lord. Now, finally, Mary praises God for his mercy. The very reason for his advent was to bring salvation to his people. The incarnation, beloved, is a result of sin. God advents because mankind has rebelled against him. God is most powerful and most holy and has every right to condemn the world for its sin. But instead, he comes to be merciful to those who fear him. That is, those who revere him by spirit-wrought faith. It is by virtue of his mercy that we are able to experience God's power and his holiness in a saving way. As Mary magnifies God for his perfections, she refuses to contain the affections of her heart for God. And so she bursts forth into singing his praises in this hymn. Now, that's the first point of the sermon. Namely, that the advent of God should cause us to magnify him for who he is. But the second point that I would like to make is that an advent of God should cause us to recognize our humble estate. As Mary's view of God was enlarged, her view of herself was reduced. The advent of God caused her to recognize her own lowliness. Now, the Roman Catholic Church would want you to believe that Mary was an immaculate person, meaning she was perfect. Without sin, how else could she have been the mother of the Messiah? How could she have bore him, been conceived with the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit if she was not an immaculate person? They would want to tell you that Mary should be magnified alongside of Christ since she was the sinless mother of God. But we can assuredly say that no one would reject this false view of Mary more than Mary herself. She speaks of her own humble estate in verse 48. And she calls her very own son her savior in verse 47. Sinners need a savior. Those who are immaculate do not. Yet she calls him her savior. And so Mary is an excellent example of one who was humble. Not many were lowlier than Mary, as we see descriptions of humility in Scripture. She was a nobody. God did not choose a queen or a princess to give birth to his son, he chose a poor handmaiden that came from nowhere. Someone who needed salvation just as much as the rest of mankind. And that is who he chose to be the mother of his son. God chose her not because of her sinlessness or greatness, but because he looked down on her lowliness and lifted her up by giving her the great honor of bearing the Savior of the world. And because of this great honor, all generations would call her blessed. Indeed, she was blessed. A person who's perfect and sinless is not too blessed to be able to have such a great 
event in their lives. She's blessed because in her state of sinfulness, she was nevertheless shown mercy in her lowliness by God and made her the mother of the Messiah. Now, should we see any type of pride in Mary's statement here? Bear in mind that she had just pronounced God's exaltation and the lowliness of her own estate. She was blessed not because of who she was, but because of what God had done. The advent of God caused Mary to respond with humility. Rather than exalting herself, she recognized her humble estate and exalted the Lord. You see, humility is a proper response to the advent of the Lord. And Mary is an excellent illustration of how God reaches down in mercy to lift those that are humble. In fact, in verse 51, Mary turns from her own personal experience to what is true universally. She writes, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He was filled He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. What Mary is telling us is that he is going to turn the world upside down. Those who are proud will be humbled, and those who are humble he will exalt. In fact, this is actually a very common theme throughout the gospel of Luke. You might recall the rich man in chapter 16. He goes to hell while Lazarus, the poor man, was taken to Abraham's bosom. The prayers of the respected Pharisee in chapter 18 were denied. While the tax collector, who couldn't even look up to heaven because of his own sin, goes home justified. On two different occasions in Luke, Jesus is quoted as saying, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so the Magnificat reminds us of this wonderful truth. Now in the second half of her song, Mary sings in what is called the prophetic past tense. And by using the past tense, she is certainly thinking of all that God has done in the past. God had displayed the power of his right arm when he brought the plagues against Egypt and drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea at the Exodus. He scattered the Philistines when Goliath was killed by David. He brought Nebuchadnezzar down from his throne and Belshazzar was dragged away from his feast and was rendered empty-handed when the kingdom of Babylon was taken from him. In redemptive history, God has always humbled the proud as he mercifully exalts his lowly people. But in using the prophetic past tense, Mary is also indicating what God will do on account of the advent of Christ. 
She recognizes that what God did in the past only foreshadowed and anticipated the great reversal that would be brought about by the Emmanuel Advent. She praises God for turning the world upside down. She speaks of it as in the past because she knows it is going to come to be. That's how sure of it it is. Hence called the prophetic past tense. It's prophesying what will be done by claiming it already has been done. You see, what the world prizes and lifts up is what God despises. And to be great in the kingdom of God, beloved, you must seek humility. Later in Luke's gospel, the disciples began disputing who would be the greatest among them. And Jesus said this to them. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Here's the point. The Lord is turning the world upside down. One does not become great by doing that which is respected by the world, but by serving in humility. Christ himself exhibited this in the incarnation. For he did not consider his equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he lowered himself and took to himself the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ, beloved, did not come in a state of exaltation. He came in a lowly estate in order to serve his people. Now, what king in history has left the splendor of his riches in order to serve his people? Christ was a servant. But in serving his people, even to the point of death, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so you see, the incarnation, beloved, is of a peace with the cross of Christ. In fact, you cannot separate the incarnation from the cross. The birth of Christ was the beginning of his estate of humiliation. And the cross was the event that culminated that estate of humiliation. The advent of Christ cannot be separated from his death. Because their logic is the same. Now, this logic is absolutely foolishness to the world. What kind of God comes to his people by being born to a lowly handmaiden? 
in a stable and laid in an animal trough? What kind of lawgiver redeems his people by being born under his own law and keeping it on their account for their sake? What kind of God saves his people by dying on a cross? That's foolishness to the world. But it is the power of God to those who are being saved. When Christ advented, he began to reverse the conditions of the fall. And this reversal will be complete at his second advent. At his second coming. Mary's, Mary composed this song because in the advent of God, she knew that God would bring these things to pass. She composed this song in order to magnify God and to rejoice in the Savior that was growing in her womb. In her lowliness, God had chosen her to be the mother of our Lord. Truly, she was blessed. But if you are a Christian, then you too can be called blessed. For Christ has in a different way, also advented to you. You see, when he advented to Mary, it was an advent for us all, but he also, in a way, a different way, advents to you who believe. The mother of our God composed this song not only for herself, but so that we, too, can magnify God and rejoice in him along with her. Now, we don't have an Advent season. In the church, we celebrate you know, so called Christmas and Easter every Lord's Day because together they are the gospel. And interestingly, uh, all five of the Nativity hymns were occasioned by the birth of Jesus, but all five of them speak of his whole redemptive work accomplished by his death and resurrection as well. Nevertheless, as we celebrate culturally Christmas, immerse yourself in Scripture as Mary had done and let it remind you of your lowliness and thus humble you so that in response you might magnify God for who He is and what He has done. Remember that He advents to those who are humble. Our Kent Hughes reminds us that Christ comes to the lowly. He does not come to major department stores, Christmas mechanized windows. He does not appear on televised Christmas specials or sit on the lead float of the Rose Parade or ride in stretch limos with the rich and famous. The Savior of the world advented to a poor servant girl and brought her salvation. And that is exactly what he does for all of his people. To him be all praise and glory forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we do pray that you would teach us to be like Christ our Savior, who did indeed humble himself and took to himself a human nature and identified with our weakness and became like us in every way except for sin. The eternal Son 
who's high and lifted up, who's holy and above all, came down. And Lord, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for what he accomplished because of that truth. We also thank you for the lesson that comes from that truth, which is a lesson of humility. And we pray that you would humble us and make us servants like our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen.